You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we compare distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, and I'm here with Skylar. Skylar, and we just we just ready to get after it again today. Oh yeah. Skyler oh, just yeah. pulled the gum out of his mouth. I, <laughs> yes. About to take a sip of water. Yeah. I don't want the listeners to smell my bad breath. Like so. the, yeah, the pre, yeah. pre-game <laughs> routines here. So. Today is a great day. Yeah. Yeah. Not to focus on me, but it's actually the anniversary of my baptismal day. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. The day that the one became many. Yeah. And today we talk about the meal that reminds the many that we are one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And publicly renouncing false gods and yep. false Christs. And yep. Yeah. It yep. was a uh, uh, great day. For, great day. <laughs> Springtime, you know, great great time of the year to be baptized. Yeah, it was with my mother and brother as well. Yeah. So all three of us, same day. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. What else have you been up to this uh, weekend? Any? Oh, man. Same old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got therapy today. That'll be good. Yep. Yeah. When's the last time you just, like, went for a hike or something? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I hike with, like, earphones, and I'm listening to stuff then, too. Yeah. 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 Um, so it feels good to sweat. Yeah. So <laughs> well, yeah, taking a break, break. I don't know. Maybe when you're on vacation, I will. Yeah. I'll, but I'll have to force myself to. Yeah. Because part of me wants to like get ahead when you're, when you're gone. What, what would you do to get a break, break? Like what, what does that mean for you? <laughs> oh boy. I, I don't even know. Any weird stuff? Like you got, you know. Bird watching. Oh yeah. But I haven't true. done it consistently in over a decade. So I think. I think go I do some bird have, watching, man. Yeah, go watch some birds. I love birds. Get out the binoculars, dust them off. Yeah, and even breaks in terms of reading sometimes are books on birds. Uh, my my good friend in North Carolina and I read a book on birds recently that was incredible. It was about their migratory patterns and the amazing biological change in certain birds to be able to make these trips of sometimes 10,000 plus miles a year. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's seriously, you know, yeah. it's such an amazing creation of God. It really is. I love, uh, you know, when you go to museums, like so, some people get into the diversity of birds. I think it's amazing. But, yes. But what always strikes me is the beetles. Yeah. You know? How many kinds? Oh, yeah. And just how beautiful they are. Right. It's like this tiny little insect that... You just don't even think twice about typically, you know, you see crawling around on the ground, but when you stop and you look at the detail and the color and, you know, all the variety is amazing. It's just crazy. Yes. Um, so I, I'm trying to remember the exact number, um, but there was a, a, a lady at the Natural History Museum of Utah mm-hmm. when I went uh, actually to see the Angkor Wat exhibit you know, the temple complex in Cambodia, which yeah. that was an incredible exhibit. If it's, if you guys haven't, and you're in Utah, you should go see it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you'll see the, the idols and the debates between Hindus and Buddhists visibly. It's pretty mm-hmm. intense. But there was a lady in the insect part of the museum 
And uh, she had a tarantula that was native to Utah, which, by the way, female tarantulas can live up to 30 years. Hmm. I don't know if you knew that. No. There is a, That's great. There is a great uh, disproportionate <laughs> inequality between male and female spiders, by the way. Just mm. ask this lady. It was incredible. But she, I'm trying to remember the exact number. But just in Utah alone, bees, there was like over 3,000 kinds, something like that, just in Utah kind of funny just like, of bees uh, yeah this weekend we have a three-year-old son and he's just he's just a rambunctious kid i mean he's he's hilarious but he's pretty tough too yeah and so he came just like waltzing into the back door and uh my wife and i were just sitting there and he, he said uh said daddy mommy bee just stung me be a bee just stung me and we we're just like no, <laughs> you know, like that's not true. And he's like, "Yeah, right there, bee just stung me." And we looked, and it there was like, you know, we saw a little, some a little mark in there. We're like, "Yeah, well, I guess that could be the tip of a stinger or something like that." But, anyways, he's like, "Yeah, it just stung me right there. It just flew up and it it stung <laughs> me." And he's like, "I was trying to get it away, but it stung me." Just like so matter of fact about it, you know, yeah. like you'd expect a three-year-old to be, be irate if that actually yeah. happened. So we didn't believe him. We're like, eh. and so we started keeping an eye on it. And as we, you know, watched it, it started to actually kind of swell up and have a little whelp and stuff. And we're like, maybe you are telling the truth after yeah, all. Wow. He's just kind of like, yeah, be, be stung me. No it's so interesting. Get back to life. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that I don't have to put a correction in the notes. So it's over 3,000 in, in North America. Yeah. It's over 1,000 in Utah. It's crazy. And by the way, that doesn't include the honeybee. Yeah. The honeybee was introduced to the United States, and yet that's the, our image of the bee. So she native, said, like native. native bees. Yes, and they're often solitary. They don't wow. They don't have hives. Wow. And that's just like a, That's wild. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because when I think of bee right now, I pretty much think there's maybe like what... Ten, Two? Ten different yeah. kinds. Yeah. <laughs> like are when is a wasp a bee? Like is I, that, I don't are those in the same family? I, I wish I, So just bees? I don't know. You're, I remember you're the her, bird guy, you're not the bee guy. So. I, yeah, and even with birds, like I, I feel pretty rusty. But yeah, I this I was like this lady, I'm like, I, I want to all your lectures to be posted online so I can like listen to all you have to say. Mm. Her specialty was spiders. Yeah. And yet she knew all this stuff about insects. And I guess the museum has a yearly uh, bee fest or something like mm -hmm. that. Where, um, I think even the director, is a, his specialty is in insects. Yeah. So anyway, I, it's so incredible. We're, we're, I've mentioned this on the show several times, but you know, we're getting into gardening these days. We've even found ourselves a nice little British gardening show that we've been watching. <laughs> and, and we don't have, very many, we really don't have any. We've been developing some gardens in our house. But one of the reasons I want to develop gardens is just because like, I want the day when I can just walk in my backyard and I've created a habitat, you know, where there's just birds and butterflies and <laughs> bees and all these little critters just, you know, crawling around, hanging out in my backyard. That way I can walk around and enjoy them. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's a lot of so work. Cool. It's well, a lot of work. Well, I get an invitation when it's. You know, oh yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah, I, you know I've never even been to your house. That's that's sad. That's really sad. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it's only like three blocks away. Huh. Maybe a little further than that. Well, 
I, I can walk to my house from here. We're we're at the FBC Church building right now, but yeah, I can walk to my house. It's kind of nice. I never do because I'm from Texas, and <laughs> in Texas, if it's more than fifty feet away, you drive. It's just like the culture. So I should I should walk. But yeah, no worries. I should have walked today. It's a beautiful day. It is, it is gorgeous. I don't know what what I was thinking. But so anyway, sp- speaking of oh yes. yeah. Well, I was gonna say I got to create. Speaking of bees, yes. Um, you know, one of the things about bees is they make honey. Yes. And there's a difference between being told that the honey is good and having been able to put the honey on your tongue and savor it and yes. bring it into your body. <laughs> Yes. Which reminds me of how mm-hmm. there's a difference in talking about the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> see, yes. see how smooth my transition Ab- is here? Of telling somebody yeah. in a subjective way mm-hmm. that this is kind of what it's about, but never letting them actually taste taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're talking about the Lord's Supper today. We're, we're ta- yes, and I, I was like, we could have gone the Masonic direction. If yeah. you go uh, to the Salt Lake Temple, there's beehives, which is one of the symbols of uh, yeah. masonry, right? Oh, yeah. All over the Salt Lake Temple, yeah. inside on the door handles yep. and stuff. Yep. It's interesting. So that was a better There's direction. symbols all over yeah. the temple, right? And mm-hmm. we always ask the sister missionaries, what are those, all the symbols? And they're always like, oh, I don't know. Never really noticed those before. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, there's books about that. Yes. So. There, there are plenty of books. And I do have to say, although I wish it were in a museum, like an Encore Watt exhibit, except, you know, not functioning. I wish it was a relic of the past and Mormonism was gone, but uh, I think Salt Lake Temple is probably the best thing they got architecturally, mm. yeah. Yeah. In terms of uh, well, aesthetic. it might be the conference center now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, my goodness. <laughs> Maybe so. Can we please see what the bill was on that thing? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. All right. Creed us up over there. Okay. Well, t- some background to this. Um you know, thinking about it, I, I read this as part of um, my baptismal service, our baptismal service, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I. This was big for me. So I, as faithful listeners will know, I I do like Dante Alighieri's The Divine Comedy, right? And um, though, of course, I'm more sensitive to distinctions now between Rome and the Reformed. Uh, than I would have been at the time um, in a believing context. There were a lot of seats planted for me, and this was one of them. So one thing that I was interested in, especially in my Mormon phase, post-LDS Mormon phase, uh, though there's some overlap, were texts that dealt with heavenly ascent all around the world. Um, this idea of, you know, the staircase, <laughs> Jacob's staircase kind of stuff. Um, but I wasn't sensitive to the, the Jewish-Christian distinctives of grace and, and incarnation and all that, right? So I just interpreted this as one of those and f- focused more on those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you have uh, elements of it in Homer. I mean, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous in the ancient world. And... Um, Dante's was one of mine. And the way I kind of tried to hold it all together was, you know, this kind of milk before meat stuff where things that can be technically er erroneous early on, you then replace later, 
And, you know, I had this idea of science and progress in the back of my mind for um, bolstering that claim. So I'm thinking, yeah, Dante, you can preach, you know, the cross or whatever um, early on. But once you get to the heavens, right, you're beyond that. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's how I'm interpreting it. Now, once I hit this, all of a sudden... I went back through and saw I was missing the whole point all, the whole time. Dante is actually criticizing all of these traditions because for them it's on works. It's on status, whether works in this life or previous lives or whatever. And for Dante, it's grace. And those who work never make it to the heavens. And those who don't know the name of Jesus never make it out of hell. Uh, he is not some sort of universalist. Uh, he's not a... Uh, Francis, let's say. Um, yeah. uh, so he uh, he is in, this is in Paradiso, the third um, part, third canto of his um, Divine Comedy. And he's moving beyond, at this point, he's moving beyond the planets. So these are stars. The planet means wanderer, right, in Greek. And these are, he's moving to the fixed stars, which was more symbolic to the uh, ancient and medieval mind of things that do not die, the eternal, right? Stars that stay there, don't, you know, through the seasons, dip below the horizon and back up. And uh, so he gets to a place where, um, and you know, this is also something to keep in mind, um, with our view of the university today as uh, bastions of the secular religion or the American civic religion or some sort of uh, international version of that, the, the university system as we have it was uh, invented by Christians. Um, and you kind of even see remnants of that in the graduation ceremony even. But um, you would have... Uh, you'd have to defend your being a master or a doctor, whatever. And this Dante structures this part of the heavens like that, but before the apostles. So he gets to this place, um, and um, his guide, uh, um, Be- um, Beatrice, Be- Beatrice um, introduces him, and at this part, it's Peter who is questioning him on faith. And then you're going to have hope and love. So it's John with love, James with hope, and Peter with faith in this uh, poetic rendition. So, um, you know, to, to set this up, and you'll see why this was so devastating to me. I'm like, oh, now we're to the meat. Now we're beyond that, like the Mormon temple, right? Now we're to the real stuff, the secret stuff, stuff that's so sacred it's secret kind of stuff. Nope. Try this man on the faith as you may please, as Beatrice. On any point, the weighty or the light, the faith whereby you walked upon the sea. Who walked upon the sea? Jesus. He's the faith. And so Peter says, tell me what the faith is, or what is faith? He cites Hebrews. He then, where did you receive it? From the generous rain, I answered, of the Holy Spirit, shed on the old parchment and the new. So where did the faith come from? The scriptures. He didn't say, and Aristotle, <laughs> though he likes Aristotle. Um, he calls him the master of those who know in this limbo, which is the kind of highest part of hell or whatever. But still, where did the faith come from? From the generous reign of the Holy Spirit, the old parchment and the new. Its train of reasoning has so convinced my mind, conclusions clear and sharp as any sword. All other proofs seem blunted at the end. It's more sure than even reason, right? And then, you know, uh, let's try to speed this up a little bit. But why do you take them for God's holy word? 
What makes you sure they really happened? Can you believe this was written, you know, 800 years ago? Um, this is it. What, um, what you brought forth, but now it's time to say what you believe. To profess it openly. And tell us also whence your faith has come. What is the faith and where does it come from? Oh, Holy Father, okay, uh, Dante says to Peter, Spirit who now see what once you held by a belief so strong you conquered younger feet to be the first entering the tomb, right, referring to the resurrection. You want me to declare, said I, the essence of my ready faith, and whence I have received what I profess. And I respond, I believe. Now, before you jump too quickly beyond that, notice it's not his own power he's emphasizing here. I believe what I've received, right, by the Holy Spirit through the Old and New Testaments and from Peter, who poetically he is speaking to in this scene. So it, it's, it's not his own power. It's God's grace that he receives this. You know, he doesn't think he's smarter than Aristotle, but Aristotle's in hell and he is not, you see, uh, in, his, in this poem, right? Yeah. And just, it's it just, I don't know, it, to me, it wasn't I know, it's not I've become. It's not even about him, mm-hmm. <laughs> as uh, you'll hear throughout. It's I believe. Yeah. And it's I believe in one God. Oh, wait, I thought monotheism was milk for mm-hmm. those Jews back there that couldn't figure Nope. Here we are in the heavens. This yep. ascent text, the most important one of the Middle Ages. I believe in one God. Soul and eternal, who was never moved, but moves all heaven with love and with desire. Physics and metaphysics have not proved alone such faith for me, but it also comes given me by the truth that reigned from heaven. And do we cause it to reign? Mm -hmm. The truth that reigned from heaven through Moses, through the prophets, through the Psalms, the evangelists, and you, Peter whose fostering words the Holy Spirit inspired. And I believe in three eternal persons, and in these three, one essence, so completely one in three, they suffer in conjunction, are and is. Of this deep truth, the Trinity, of this deep truth of the divinity, I touch on now, my mind has borne the seal, and you think of the the cross, right? Has borne the seal, the gospel teaching has impressed on me, this is the spark. This is the principle that spills out into such a living flame. It glitters like a star within my soul. It's mm. good. That's the faith. Yep. And, and you'll notice every systematic theology has in some sense a triune shape, right? I, th- I think of uh, Gerald Bray's uh, God Has Spoken mm-hmm. is such a good example. Um, the Trinity is... The faith. Now, everything else stems from it, and there are a lot of particulars that matter, but at its core, it's triune. And to deny the Trinity, and of course, monotheism being one of the key components of that, uh, is to not have the faith. Yeah. And it's to have no hope Mm -hmm. of heaven. Yep. Yep. I hope any LDS listeners take that to heart. Yeah, absolutely. It convicted me. Yep, that's for sure. It's a abject denial of Christ. Yep, and of His claims mm-hmm. of uh, who He is. Yep, um, which you know does 
play into what's going on in the Lord's Supper and mm-hmm. how we're to understand that as well. So mm-hmm. let me just work us through the curriculum really quickly here. We got uh, from May 29th to June 4th uh, is the dates that the LDS Church will be studying this. And uh, the passages that they list at the top of the Sunday School Manual are Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 13. So we get into the Teach the Doctrine section first with Matthew 26, 20 to 22. And Matthew uh, 26, 20 22 is the passage where Jesus is reclining at table with the disciples, and he says, you know, one of you will betray me. And the disciples are all kind of looking around saying, well, who's it going to be? It says, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they will, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, after one after the other, is it I, Lord? And he answered, uh, well, actually, that's where it stops. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stop reading there. They, so They edited it quite Yeah, so those are, those are the three verses that they are Alluding to, and here's the subtitle, we must examine our own lives to determine how the Lord's words apply to us. So it just directs you towards self-examination. Um, and uh, yeah, pr- pretty pretty shallow there. Yeah, and who determines uh, how the words apply? Yep, yep, for sure. Yeah. And then wow. we go on to Matthew 26, uh, 26 to 29. And I'll just go ahead and read those for us. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Okay. Uh, the subtitle on this section is the sacrament is an opportunity to remember the savior. I think this is just worth reading the whole thing. And by the way, what, what we're going to do today for the most part is I'm going to cover this and then we're just going to have a discussion on the Lord's supper. Um, generally, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, just getting some of the specifics of LDS belief on that and how that contrasts to, uh, to Christian interpretation. Okay, so the sacrament is an opportunity to remember the Savior. How would class members explain the sacred ordinance of the sacrament to someone who isn't familiar with it? That's a good question. Skyler's going to answer that for us, hopefully. <laughs> Perhaps you can create a list together of questions that someone might have about the sacrament, such as why did the Savior give us a sacrament? Why are bread and water... It's an interesting note for evangelicals there. Bread and water. Such powerful symbols of Jesus Christ. What do we promise as we partake of the sacrament? What promises do we receive? Class members could look for the answers in the following resources. Matthew 26, 26 to 29. Doctrine and Covenants. There you go again with the Doctrine and Covenants, 2075 to 79. And also you could look at the sacrament talk from Todd Christofferson, which is in the additional resources. So let me read that from Todd Christofferson here at the end. Uh, the subtitle in the additional resources is Internalize the Qualities and Character, uh, Character of Christ. So here's the quote from Christofferson. Figuratively, Eating the Savior's flesh and drinking his blood means to internalize the qualities and character of Christ. 
putting off the natural man and becoming saints through the atonement of Christ the Lord, Mosiah 3.19. As we partake of the sacramental bread and water each week, we would do well to consider how fully and completely we must incorporate his character and the pattern of his sinless life into our life and being. So here you go with, you know, this is just a mechanism that helps effectively uh changes to be more like Jesus. It's mm-hmm. this example, 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 you know, how, how are you changing your life? Yep. Um, and we, we discussed that talk a little bit in the John sex six episode. Yeah. Uh, where um, there's no distinction between the communicable and incommunicable attributes of Christ. And, and so, yeah, we discussed a little bit, which there. for those Some who don't know what you mean by those theological terms, right? Christ is man, communicable, incommunicable. Yes, so there's some attributes of God that are unique to God by virtue of him being the one God. Yep. And Christ is that God. Yeah, those are the incommunicable attributes. Right. And the things that we don't have in common in any way, shape, or form with the divine. Right. Qualitatively distinct, not just qualitatively more. Quantitatively more, I mean. Qualitatively distinct, not quantitatively more. Yeah. And uh, so you'll notice there's no distinction there whatsoever in that talk, which is a fatal flaw in it. Yep. And then the last couple of sections are from John 13, and one of them is the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and the subtitle there is, The Savior is Our Example of Humbly Serving Others. There's your example, example, example again. Uh, And then John 13, 34, and 35, which is the passage where uh, Jesus says, I don't have it open in front of me, but basically says a new commandment to give to you, love one another as I've loved you. They will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And uh, the subtitle in the LDS curriculum is, Our love for others is a sign that we are true disciples of Christ. How might you inspire class members to be more loving? And it's just kind of this, you know, think about how you can improve in your love for others. I will, to their credit, make a note here, Uh, of the second subsection where they say, as a class, you have learned a lot about the Savior's life this year, including many examples of how he showed his love for others. One way to help class members ponder this commandment in John 13, 34 could be to write, as I have loved you on the board, and to ask class members to list examples they recall from the New Testament to illustrate Jesus's love. Then you could write, love one another on the board and ask class members to, to list ways that we can follow his example of love. Um, so yeah, anyways, I, I'll give them the credit there in the, in the sense that they do at least in the Sunday school manual, do a, a good job of making sure that we're reflecting on Christ's love first, because that is where we would begin from an evangelical Christian standpoint. But as you pointed out in a conversation before we went on the air, so to speak, Skylar, that's not exactly the direction they took in the seminary manual. And so you do continue to see these inconsistencies in the way that they present this material, right? Right, absolutely. Um, Should I hit that just really quick? So um, take it out right now. So in the John 13 lesson uh, called Love One Another, listen to this line. This lesson can encourage you to seek happiness through serving and loving others as Jesus did. What does that turn others into? A means rather than an end in themselves. A means of your happiness. Is it a means to God's glory? So my question would be, so if loving someone else diminishes your happiness, should you do it? 
And the Christian answer is yes, because we're called to suffer, yeah. absorb evil yep. the way Christ did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, of course, a mimicry of, of Christ in our limited and finite way, to be clear. Yeah. I, I guess in a, a Mormon context, it got to be really clear. Not, not taking on the sins of the world, but the point is take up your cross. And often uh, Christian love diminishes our own subjective happiness because we see them as made in the image of likeness in God, just as we are. And it's to God's glory mm. that we sh- should uh, do all things, not just our own happiness. And to show that this isn't just a little hiccup in how they worded that sentence, um, they have <laughs> um, a children's song trying to be like Jesus and think about reasons why you want to try to be like Jesus, right? In what ways are you trying to be like Jesus? And uh, they emphasize Jesus as an example, which once again, that's, that's wrong. Um, one of my favorite books, this is a short quote uh, from it. Um, it's uh, by Harold O.J. Brown, and it's a book called Heresies, The Image of Christ and the Mirror of Heresy and Orthodoxy from the Apostles to the Present. Really interesting book, really, really interesting book. And he points out early on in the book that Christianity <clears throat> is based primarily on the person of Christ first, the teachings and example of Christ at most second, right? So Christianity takes its name from its founder, Christ. Buddhism is also named for its founder, and non-Muslims often call Islam Mohammedanism. But while Buddhism and Islam are based primarily on the teaching of the Buddha and Muhammad, Christianity is based primarily on the person of Christ. The Christian faith is not belief in his teaching, but in what is taught about him. Right, mm. He's making an mm-hmm. importance point. The appeal of Protestant liberals to believe as Jesus believed rather than to believe in Jesus is a dramatic transformation. I would say rejection, but he says transformation of the fundamental yeah. nature of Christianity. And of course, you want a whole book-length treatment of just that one sentence. Look at Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. Back to the LDS manual. Uh, they have an op- this uh, lesson activity um, where you're, they... They draw a diagram on, um, this is alternate way to begin the lesson, a diagram where on one end you write unhappy and draw a line to the other end truly happy. And then you read the following questions aloud and invite students to ponder their answers. Where would you place yourself on this continuum? So where would you put yourself on the continuum between unhappy and truly happy? Yeah. As if, by the way, we are good at analyzing our own yeah. true happiness yeah. ever. I mean, it's just so weird. It's kind of like when a <laughs> nurse comes into your room when you're in the hospital and says, where's your pain on a scale of one to 10 right now? Yeah, right. It's like How, relative, relative to, to my whole life. I, yeah. like, I'm a 10 right now, you know? <laughs> right. Or think about like, are you as healthy as you should be? Yeah. Well, it's like you could always be healthier. Right. You could always be unhealthier right like it, it to me this kind of question is just so yeah. almost meaningless right I'm in a dying body so yeah, right. i don't know <laughs> right. how healthy i can in relative to what right this some ideal or yeah. whatever okay would you by like, the way i do think i you know i'm probably a 10 on the happy scale are you 10 a, uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know that objectively skylar yes and, you know i i am quite happy so well Given that answer, how would you answer the second question? Would you like to be happier than you currently are? Absolutely not. I am. Right. I'm at the pinnacle of happiness, and uh, everybody should come and join me. So. It's, just, it's just so funny. Yeah. And then the third, no, what would you like rough. to help become happier? Mm. Once again, you, 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 
And then it's always these vague, un, like, no stand. It, it reminds me of, uh, you know, would you like to make more money? Yeah. It's like, who would answer no? But if you mm. said, well, you're going to work 10 more hours, you're going to have this stress load, you're going to have this responsibility, and you're going to have this office instead of that office, whatever. Yeah. If you analyzed it with the costs as well, yeah, it would shift your answer. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, studies, even on uh, work, uh, in work happiness promoted by unions and other propagandists, uh, that's why they're often just so relative to what? Like, yeah. it's... Who would like to earn less doing the same thing? Like nobody, mm. but who would want the responsibility that came with the additional pay? Yeah. That's a completely different question. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, this is way more important, but it's that kind of just eh, ambiguous, whatever. Then finally, it's as students study John 13, invite them to look for principles that will, principles, not exegesis, not what Jesus actually, for principles that will help them know what they can do to be happier. Mm-hmm. What they can do yeah. to become happier. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That is, that's insane. You are responsible for your own happiness. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's, this it, is a yeah. principle that you have to apply mm-hmm. in order to achieve it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, Col- Colossians 1, right? Yeah. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian? You are Christ's body. And as Christ's body, church, we are, as Paul says, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What does that mean? Well, that means that inherent to the Christian life is suffering, you know, um, and an identification with Jesus, a participation in him when we do suffer, and suffering and joy, um, not just this kind of shallow, let me be happy, happy, happy. I don't think that we would reject the uh, the importance of happiness in the Christian life either. I think sure. the modern day author and really what he's doing is resurrecting a lot of Jonathan Edwards' thoughts. But John Piper is the best on this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's developed what he calls uh, Christian hedonism, okay. like that term or or not. His point is that uh, bringing glory to God does bring deep pleasure into your soul. Yeah, but the difference between the uh, Christian, the credo-Christian perspective on this that has been articulated so clearly by people like Jonathan Edwards and John Piper, uh, you know, 300 years later, is that the LDS perspective, we would say, is almost like, let me lay out a meal before you and and uh, give you, you know, a thousand chores that you have to do before you can sit down and eat it. And probably by the time you get to sit down and eat it, it's going to be bacteria infested and rotted out, and you're not going to get to actually enjoy it whatsoever anyways. But, I, but I'll show you a picture of it every once in a while um, just to keep you on the hook, right? Uh, just to keep you going. Uh, that, that really is it, right? Because the, the aim in the LDS system is exaltation. Yep. And until you've gotten to exaltation, you're not satisfied. And even once you do, I don't yep. know that you right. are. Right. Really more you've got to keep working, there, right? You keep going. And the Christian yeah. position is that everything is about us finding our deepest satisfaction, not in what we do, but in trusting what Christ has done. Yep. And so we get to now sit at Christ's table and feast on him and internalize the deep level of satisfaction and joy and pleasure 
that comes when we realize that Jesus is our total spiritual sufficiency. You know, yeah. we, we get to we get to to feast on him now. We're not waiting for for just that future day. Um, but having said that, that's not to say we don't have a future hope. But the the hope is in a subtle way manifest even now mm-hmm. in the Lord's Supper that yes. we take week after week, uh, which leads to that conversation. And so before we get into more of a, a evangelical Christian articulation of the Lord's Supper, why don't you help us understand how the LDS faith approaches this? How do they understand the sacrament? Um, lay, lay it on us thick. Okay, sounds good. And just one point, I, it'll, and it'll tie into what we close on, that was one of the deepest realizations for me, just right before I go into the LDS part of it. So in the ancient world, sacrifice is very common, if not ubiquitous, right? But if you look at what happens where, I mean, you have the temple as the center, at least the symbolic center of the city. You have priests in certain callings, certain buildings, certain uh, vocations that are kind of mediators between the people and the god of the city or the gods of the city. And, of course, that can be different on certain calendar days or it can be different spaces mm-hmm. associated with them. And then it's just incredible what these ancient societies would sacrifice to appease a god or try to get them on their side, right? And yep. then if if things started going wrong, they would then say, what have the, what has the king? That's why like a cataclysm could be a national security issue mm. because the association of what is the king not doing right. to make the god angry at us. Yeah. A PR problem. Exactly. And you yeah. see this where if there's a famine or something, there's social unrest. It's not just, uh, you know, oh, this is unfortunate. Uh bad luck, as we might even say. Yeah. They would say there's something wrong. And so uh, typically stability was associated with good t- you know, good things happening, which means that a certain God is happy with the people. Here's, here's a huge difference, right? These priests, they're giving food to a deity or their icons in the world, their idols in the world, to show their loyalty. Here, the one God, not one of many, not the most powerful for now, the one God who made all things incarnates and feeds us. Mm-hmm. God the Father gives God the Son for us. Yeah. You're, you're, and, get, you're getting too excited too early here, Skylar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, you see the huge difference. Yeah. That we as moderns and democratic and individualistic and Freudian and I mean all the rise of the triumph of individualistic, hedonistic, uh, you know, all the stuff that we actually see exemplified in the LDS manual. We do not understand in the ancient world. You're you're getting me excited here because, you know, even if we started to think of a biblical theology of how this works out in the storyline of of the Bible, um, who creates the Garden of Eden? Right. And what is the Garden of Eden? God creates the Garden of Eden. He gifts it to man. And in that garden are fruits of all kinds. So the Bible begins with a feast. I mean, it begins with God feeding his creation. And and then, of course, mankind rebels against him. And that causes the ground to become cursed, where now there's, there's a... A, a joylessness, I guess, in the work that wouldn't have been there otherwise uh, had man been faithful to their covenant. 
But then think about how food continues to play such a prominent role as you walk through the storyline of Scripture. Um, you know, just hitting a couple of highlights. One, obviously, is when God rescues his people out of Egypt, what does he do? He says, you know, basically get get some fast food together, you know, put, put, put this Passover meal together, and this Passover meal is going to represent uh, a, a remembrance of me being the God that saved you out of Egypt. And so the whole Passover has a lot of significance that we'll get to a little bit later on. But then what happens when Israel is in the wilderness and they don't have any food? God causes manna to fall out of the sky. He causes water to come yeah. out of the rock. He feeds his people when they're in their moment of, of desperate need. And so he continues to be this God who is providing for his people, taking care of his people, feeding them, causing food to literally fall out of the sky. And then you continue to see these feasts established under the Mosaic Covenant. And, and in these feasts, God's people are to remember as they enjoy this food, this sustenance, that all of this is under and because of the faithful provision of God. You know, it's all supposed to be tied to God's redemptive purposes in the world. And so anywhere where you see God doing a work amongst his people, you see them feasting. Um, in celebration to the work of their God and in a manner that would cause them to remember that their salvation is in him and in him alone. Yes. It's, he is the God who provides all of that. And all of that leads up to this moment where Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper for his people, which is the, the symbol, the sign and seal of the new covenant, which is in his blood that uh, he establishes around the table during the Passover meal where he says, okay, let me tell you what this has all been about this whole time. It's been about me. I'm coming to die for you, shed my blood for you, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's what this meal represents. And then how does the Bible end? The Bible ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we all will be, all the redeemed will be in heaven, gathered around a table together, enjoying the the feast of all feasts, uh, which will be a moment where we simply celebrate being God's people in his presence, not because of a single thing that we ever did right, but because God has provided for our salvation wholly and completely. Um, so the meals are always a gift. They're always yes. a gift. They're always us just receiving the goodness, the grace of God. And uh, yeah, it's all through the Bible. I mean, eating is all over the scriptures. And I love it. As soon as you start seeing that, you see God's people aren't a people who are tirelessly working, hoping that there's going to be a meal somewhere down the road. No, we're the people who God is sustaining by giving us these spiritual feasts over and over again to keep us nourished so that we will remain steadfast to him only because he's been steadfast in his love towards us. Right. And by spiritual, I take it, we mean more than real. Not yeah. less than real. Yeah. That's going to play into the interpretation right. of the Lord's Supper. Yep. But right. absolutely. Hit us with it. So, okay. yeah. I, I want to come. You, you got me I'll, too excited. No, to no. And I, I want to riff on that and I'm going to resist and see if it, we can come back to it at the end. Yep. Okay. Uh, LDS. Uh, so, their view, um, I mean, it's, they, they want to say it's really important. Uh, to remember Jesus' is atoning sacrifice and keep his commandments. There's always the and, but, yep. comma, and keep his commandments. And to help us do this, he commanded us to meet off in particular sacrament. Help us do this. We do these things to do, 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 you, 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 which is the theme of the whole year. Um, so it it's a reminder. Um, there's not even... Uh, 
sort of anxiety around it being real. <laughs> like they don't deal, deal with this really at all in John 6. Mm-hmm. Um, now they use bread and water in remembrance of his flesh and blood. Okay, water and blood. Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, and then we are they, they do have it as a renewing of their sacred covenants. Um, which covenants they, they do answer sometimes and sometimes not at all. Um, I'm going to skip some of this. Uh, I'll, I'll link it, of course, in the show notes. Um, of course, they emphasize the Joseph Smith translation. It can never be what the actual apostle wrote. Um, and they do say Jesus, of course, instituted this among the ancient uh, white Native Americans that didn't historically exist. Um, so how it's administered ties to their priesthood, right? So we've, we've mentioned this a little bit um, where you have um, the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood, right? And in the Aaronic priesthood, uh, you have deacons who, um, if they're worthy, of course, always, if they're worthy, um, which who can be worthy, no one, but... For them, you can, because they give you a list of rules. And behind all forms of legalism is a semi-Pelagian view of man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you'd think that the rule-based systems would emphasize sin more, and to uninformed observers, that's true. But in fact, if you look at the substance behind it, rule-based systems assume you can do it, which is a too-exalted view yep. of man. Yep. A post-fall, post-fall, I should say. Mm-hmm. So the deacon can prepare the sacrament. Then you have teachers who are about 14 years old, if they're worthy. They, um, or sorry, sorry, deacons pass the sacrament. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Deacons pass the sacrament to the congregation. Teachers prepare the sacrament. And then priests uh, around 16 year old, years old or older can uh, bless the sacrament. Okay, so uh, pass, prepare, bless. Deacon, teacher, priest. Um, now, um, the sacrament is uh, administered by those who hold the necessary priesthood authority. If you don't hold the necessary priesthood authority, you cannot do these in an authorized way. Um, and this is an interesting one to point out, too, because for as much emphasis, especially in the early Mormonism, right, about um, against liturgy, against set prayers, against creeds, and whatever. And they'll say, no, it should come from the heart. It should be spontaneous, even though most who have been in the Mormon community or been around it for any length of time knows they have set patterns that are just culturally defined rather than ecclesiastically defined, and which is better? Uh, I, I don't know. Here's an example of the irony, right? You, they have set prayers, and I'll put a link to them. I could read them here if, if you would think it would be interesting. But they have set prayers for the bread and the wine. Mm-hmm. And so what happens if you if you walk into an LDS chapel, you'll see, of course, the pews. You'll have the center. Of course, there's no Bible at the center because their message is themselves, um, right? Uh, and to the right, typically, there will be a table where the in a white cloth over the sacrament materials bread and water and then there's a microphone at a spot right behind the table and then the probably two rows or so in front that's where the people who are going to pass the sacrament will sit and let's say there's not enough deacons uh, if you're of a higher priesthood you can help so if you're um, have the Melchizedek priesthood or whatever you can always officiate in the lower ones if need be yeah. but you can't go it doesn't go the other way around and uh, the the priest will kneel and 
I kid you not, the, the, I, I have heard them have to repeat the prayer three to five times sometimes. Now, you know, and someone's experienced or will open their eyes and just read it. That's just because they got a word wrong? They, yes. If you get one word wrong yeah. or even don't say it clearly, it's not valid. So what will happen is when the priest finishes, he'll look over at the bishop and the bishop will nod to say that was good. Yeah. And then they will stand up and you know lift the sheet and then they will hand the trays to the teachers and deacons to pass out to the congregation and then wait for it all to come back and then they will do it again with yeah. the water and once again the prayer is it has to be the exact words in yeah. the exact right way you get into that magic worldview again i think so right like there's like the incantation has to be said exactly, exactly right, right exactly. in order to tap into the power right and yeah. the and the words are revealed so they'll say jesus has revealed but what they cite is the dnc in the book of mormon mm-hmm. um which is interesting and by the way in in, in terms of uh really believing Mormons, they will sometimes even debate which is better, the Book of Mormon or the DNC version, even though the words are basically the same. I, I, I just re- recall, and I, I couldn't find the, the source if there had been changes to one or whatever, so I can't remember if that's coming out of somewhere or nowhere. I can't, I can't remember, but I just remember one particular time someone tell me explicitly, make sure if you do it, because in my Mormon phase, I would do it on my own mm-hmm. uh, with certain some people in a different group and uh for them they emphasize the book of mormon version being more pure or something like that and i can't remember why but anyway uh, the point is it has to be said exactly the same now what happens is the first person given the tray goes up and they give the bishop first and no one can partake until the bishop has or whoever is presiding over the meeting which once again could be somebody who's higher up um, so let's say a general authority is there or something like that, or uh, somebody, they'll, they'll always say they are presiding over the meeting and they partake first and then the bishop and then everyone else. Now, here's a huge difference as well. As you're given the bread and the water, you partake of it right then. Mm-hmm. There's no sense of holding it and waiting for the whole community to take it together. Yeah. So for as much emphasis on home teaching and this and ward and social aspect of Mormonism, once again, don't let that confuse. Spiritually, it's radically individualistic yeah. in a way that Christianity is not. Should not be. Should not be. Yeah, that's an important point to make because we, we, we could talk a lot about how a lot of credo-Christian contexts have taken up a more individualistic practice within the Lord's Supper. But, yes. Uh, but thankfully, I think there's a correction of that happening in a lot of those circles right now. With an I, emphasis on the communal, I sure hope so. Yep, it it, it stood out to me uh, quite a bit when I first started attending Christian churches. The difference there, yep, um, especially in in a more reformed context. Yeah. Um, now it, it's funny in the prayers it talks about wine instead of water. So in the manual they put water in brackets, and the, what they will cite as um, reason for so doing is DNC twenty seven. Um, where it says it really doesn't matter as long as you're remembering Jesus. And um, I just think, I just think that's really ironic, right? The, the reason, I think, without having looked in great detail at this historically, at what point they stopped using wine, um, is the word of wisdom, which, once again, if you actually read it, as currently constituted in the LDS DNC, um, it's not by commandment nor constraint, and yet has been prioritized 
to such a huge degree that it's one of the few things people know about Mormons is that they don't drink alcohol or whatever or shouldn't. Um, Now, I want to point out, ironically, um, that um, in the early church, uh, some of the worst heretics, when I talk early church, I'm talking 100s even, uh, some of the earliest heretics were called Aquarians for using water instead of wine. And there were two groups who did this, both of which denied the true Christ. One was a group who didn't see him as fully God and therefore saw him as an example more. I'm being very general here, but they did. They denied it because they denied that his blood paid for sin. Yeah. Then the other group was more Gnostic-oriented. They used the, the water because they emphasized that he wasn't actually embodied. Yeah. Does that make sense? He, mm-hmm. he was dos, they were docetists in the sense that he only seemed to take on a body. Yeah. He wasn't actually a body. And, and if someone's like, well, it's practical too, you know, uh, water over, well, I mean, Christian churches do wine just fine. Like, yeah. I, I don't know, but it makes me think if it doesn't matter, why don't they make the same argument with baptism? Mm-hmm. You know, in Saudi Arabia, is it more practical to baptize with air? It's a lot more yeah. uh, practical than water. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, once again, it's just one of these things where that they flippantly change and don't even see what that looks like to inform Christians at all, which is heresy yeah, in denial of the incarnation or denial of the atonement, which is better. I mean, yeah. you need both. And that's yeah. why the Orthodox emphasize the wine because of both. He's incarnate fully God and fully man or truly God, truly man, probably the better way to put it. And that his blood has atoning significance. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, really quickly, I'm probably taking too long on this, uh, but I just want to get this in great detail. So before we get to the Christian side, right, is at least in the Gospel Principles Manual, uh, of course, they emphasize the reverent manner in which it needs to be happening. The covenants we renew during the sacrament, okay? Um, I thought this was important enough to bring out, even though... um, a lot of this will be repetitive with old lessons, but I think one thing that should be said, and if there's LDS listeners, I think this is very important. When so much of your claims are resting on the temple mm-hmm. and that the most sacred things are secret, it doesn't matter how much you say it's important, it will function and theologically, it must be less sacred when it's public than when it's secret. So over and over, they say, reverent, it's secret. They'll cite talks that do the same thing. Mm-hmm. My point is, it must not be as important as the things you hide then. Yeah. So you can't have the benefit of the sacred-secret paradigm and none of the costs. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's not taken as seriously by even average LDS people relative to their own talks... There's a reason, yeah. I think. And once again, the, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it undermines their more public services. Like for, for um, a Christian, right? What's our most sacred doctrine? Well, here's this book on the Trinity. It's 1999 on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no, nothing like, oh, secret, the secrets of this or the right. secrets of that. And, and though Christians can get into the same mentality, mm. it's in spite of Christianity, not because of it. So here... If it's true that your most sacred ordinances aren't public, don't criticize us when we point out how little importance you have in your public ordinances. Yeah. So um, what covenants do we renew during the sacrament? 
is what they say in the manual. What blessings does the Lord promise us as we keep those covenants? Once again, it's what we do. There's no covenant of blood sovereignly administered. There's no covenant based on grace, based on what God will do relative to himself, yeah. Genesis 15, and stuff like that. No, it's there, what there's we no, do. There's no sense of the history of redemption no. whatsoever, of no. God, God's people consistently breaking covenant and God himself intervening as the mm-hmm. one who is steadfast in his love, yep. and he is the one who keeps covenant yep. um, to the extent that he sends his own son into the world to be the pu- perfect covenant keeper yes. as a man, the God-man, um, because we could not keep it. So yeah, there, there's just, all that is lost, which, yep. by the way, that's the fundamental meaning of the whole Bible. Yeah, Isaiah it's, 101. That is it. Like, yes. it, you can't read the Bible rightly. No. Um and come to any other conclusion, then that's what God's doing. Right. He is the one keeping covenant, not us. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. And he sometimes covenants with himself to do this for Abraham and his seed. Yep. (laughs) Yep. In the Gospels, the the, news about that. And and we may get into that. That's not to say that we don't see uh, the taking of the Lord's Supper as having a sense of our covenant promises to God at all. Sure. But those are in Christ. Yeah. You know, those are those are all understood uh, as those who are only in covenant with God because of the blood of Jesus, right? Yeah. And they don't so, add to his work. That's right. However else you understand it. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So um, they'll say a covenant is a sacred promise between the Lord and his children. Once again, we would say, okay, that's a neat definition for you, but... The Bible's definition can be very different, and I'm not trying to get into differences in covenant, whatever. But like, there's a lot of Christian thought on this, yeah. <laughs> and of course, they're not interested in that. The, uh, so they say the covenants we make are clearly stated in the sacramental prayers. Okay, listen to this: what we covenant that we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. By this, we are willing to be identified with Him in His church, by which they mean the LDS Church, and that alone. We commit to serve him and our fellow man. We promise that we will not bring shame or reproach upon that name, which that can go wrong pretty quickly. You can point out absolutely the truth about Joseph Smith to get excommunicated from this church. And I can name names. People who could, I mean, who believe in Mormonism probably even more than some of the leaders, right? Oh, yeah. And they'll get excommunicated. So by shame or reproach, they mean the reputation as they define it yep. at any given moment. Um, we covenant to always remember Jesus. Um, okay, which Jesus, um, all our thoughts, feelings, and actions will be influenced by him and his mission. Once again, though, they have a Godhead of three distinct beings and persons. It's kind of weird to then just emphasize him. Uh, why not Heavenly Father? Uh, we promise to keep his commandments. That's part of it. Yeah. Uh, they are promising in taking the sacrament, uh, by baptism, I should say, and then the renewing through the sacrament mm-hmm. to keep his commandments. Um, and we take these obligations upon ourselves. Notice that. See the weight that they, these people, these, once again, I want to say these poor people in the sense that they are victims of the system. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they want the lie. Yeah. So it is not just blaming people at the top. No. And it's not just blaming people at the bottom. Yep. There's something, and you see this even in like really toxic, and I'm not just saying that in a pop way, but like dangerously unhealthy relationships, right? Both parties need whatever lie the other provides and i think that's true socially here thus when we partake of the sacrament we renew the covenants we made when we were baptized 
Third Nephi, Joseph Smith translation. Here's this. The Lord promises that if we keep our covenants, we will always have his spirit to be with us. If we keep our, if you do all that, yep. his spirit will be there for you. And a person guided by the spirit will have the knowledge, faith, power, and righteousness to gain eternal life. So even if you do all of that, the spirit's there to help you gain eternal life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, to speed this up a little bit, prepare ourselves, prepare ourselves. They use that quite a bit. You prepare yourselves. And there's no sense of God preparing us, making us ready. Yep. Um, and um, we should examine our lives, look for ways to improve. Yeah. And uh, last line I want to read from the manual. If we partake of the sacrament with a pure heart, we receive the promised blessings of the Lord. It reminds me of... Um, and I hope I'm remembering this right. Uh, in Cardinal Sadaletto's letter that Calvin's responded to, there's this point where he's just like, you know, look, you're making this too complicated. Just love God. Just love God. And Calvin says, just love God? (laughs) (laughs) Who can do that? So, yeah, it is uh, pretty different. In terms of the, um, uh, what it means beyond that, there's not much attention to it except when it's even more scary to me. Let me uh, read you this um, quote. In fact, I've got two quotes here that I thought were worth including in this episode. And hopefully this frames the Christian part well. Um, Of course, on the importance of the ordinance of the sacrament, they say, share personal experience. Don't teach doctrine. In fact, don't. How about exegete this text in context? No, nope. share personal experience. And then one important reason. This is under the heading. One important reason um, to partake the sacrament. Uh, sorry, one important reason we attend church is to partake the sacrament. Sorry, that's that's what it was. Why do we go to church? And this is um, Cheryl A. Esplin, uh, formerly of the Primary General Presidency. Listen to this. The more we ponder the significance of the sacrament, the more sacred and meaningful it becomes to us. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to get into like the range of views, right, among Christians a little bit, um, if I hurry up. Um, but wow. Yeah. That to me, and I, this is going to sound like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. That's atheism right there. Yeah. That, that, it, that, I put that in the Sam Harris camp. Mm-hmm. You're telling me in a talk promoting the sacrament, and was, which was thought by those who put these manuals together to be worthy enough, probably a bad word choice, to be good enough, true enough to put in the Sunday school manual on the sacrament, mm-hmm. says the sacred in meaning. This, the sanctity and meaning of the Lord's Supper depends on how we ponder it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the atheist argument that religion is all what people take to it, how yeah. is that any different? And, and even the word significance, right? The whole postmodern moment we live in. You know, when, when Jacques Derrida of Grammatology 
triumphantly adds to Nietzsche, by the way, in one sense, but is totally different in another, but we don't have time to get into that. He glories in the very first part of the book in the death of the Logos. Why? Not just the death of God, the death of Christ incarnate. Why? Because we now know that there is nothing signified in the words we use. So the idea of a signifier, right, this kind of plane of expression, you know, what we're trying to communicate about, having meaning deeper, right, that there's this reality to it, the signified, that's what's denied by postmodernism, and that's what's being denied here. Mm. And that, I, I, uh, I could go on with this quote, but to me, that was just incredible to read. And notice, even in the question of the manual, why do you go to church? They don't say to worship God. Yeah. They say to to partake of the sacrament and the sacrament's meaning and sanctity is dependent on you. Yep. All Mormonism is is in the psychology, the subjective experience of the individual. Yep. And to that extent, I agree. Mm-hmm. It is only true as far as people believe it because there mm-hmm. is no truth to it. Yep. Yep. But I just think no wonder people go from this to agnosticism, atheism. It's a point we've made quite a bit, but it needs to be made because so many people are leaving. How few are ending up in faithful Christian churches? Yeah. it's. I mean, they got to be real about very, that. Very, very few, yeah. I mean, praise God for everyone who is saved. Yeah. Right? I'm just, you know. Yeah. I think one last point to cover that would be helpful is um, who gets barred from the table in an LDS uh, context? Um, who, who is not allowed to partake in the sacrament? You know, that's... uh, Just generally. Generally. Well, typically, uh, confession takes place to uh, a bishop. Um, I guess in some cases it could be a counselor, but typically a bishop. And if the sin confessed, which would include all their arbitrary rules as well, uh, and it could include sins that we would agree are sins, Mm -hmm. um, though our context is very different. Um, If the bishop says do not... Uh, they won't. And of course, it's in a very public setting. And and, and I do think it's important to point out um, that c- can happen in Christian churches as well who guard the table. Um, but I think the public shame of it is something that'll stand out to a lot of people who are in it or who have left. And it can make them allergic to um, church authorities like here at FBC Provo where you guys attempt to guard the table, right? Mm-hmm. Um they might be allergic to that. That's something to keep in mind as, as Christians, uh, especially Christian pastors here in Utah, that that's something to probably ad- address head on with people who are investigating Christianity because it can just feel so familiar, like feel the same way, yeah. even if it's not. Yep, for sure. I think that's a good transition point to go ahead and talk about some of the differences in uh, evangelical or credo Christian interpretation um, to think about, you know, how this has been understood uh, even throughout history. And uh, one, one of the time periods where we start to see a lot of disagreement and debate on the nature of the Lord's Supper was during the Reformation. And so during the Reformation, you really have four views that came to the surface. And uh, the one, of course, was the Roman Catholic view, which was that of transubstantiation, that uh, you, you bless the elements and they literally become the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, the other view was that of um, 
of uh, Luther, which was a step away from the Roman Catholic view, Luther held to what was called consubstantiation, which was that the elements uh, literally became the body and blood of Jesus upon ingesting them, taking them into your body. And so Luther highlighted a real presence of Christ, um, even substantially uh, in the substances. There was a literal presence of Christ as it came into your body. Um, There was actually a physiological element that even came into play. In Luther's view, as soon as you took the elements into your body, John Calvin took a view that has become known as as the real presence view, which means that there's there's never an actual transition or change of the elements themselves into the literal body and blood of Jesus, but that in partaking of the Lord's Supper, there is a real spiritual presence. And we don't mean that there's, of course, as you've already mentioned in passing, uh, less significant presence because it's spiritual. We believe spiritual is real. Yeah, God um, is spirit. It, yeah, and that so doesn't mean God is less real. That's right. So, so Calvin's view, of course, is is essentially by the Holy Spirit, uh, there is a communion with Christ that is a powerful, real spiritual communion that occurs in the elements. And Calvin's view kind of became the dominant view within many uh, reform circles. All the way, you know, da- down towards a, a significant part of the of the um, history of the reform movement, and uh, and it really wasn't until later on, especially in Baptist circles. And when I say later on, I really mean nineteenth century. So, kind of during the revivalistic era, when uh, honestly, like a lot of Baptists became began to emphasize what they called the altar call at the end of the service as being kind of a, the fundamental moment of response to God. And because the altar call became such a popular movement within Baptist circles, a lot of Baptists started to take a Zwinglian view of the Lord's Supper, which in turn led to them belittling the importance of it and thinking that it could kind of be something that was, you know, sho- shoved off to the side. And that's one interpretation of Baptist history anyways. But the mm-hmm. the fourth view of, of the... the Reformers was by Holerich uh, Zwingli, and Zwingli's view was that the Lord's Supper is only a symbolic remembrance of the body and blood of Christ. So there's no now they would still you know say that there's a spiritual significance to it, but it is mere remembrance. There's nothing spiritually unique that's occurring uh, during this moment of the Lord's Supper regarding the presence of Christ with His people. Um, it, you know, it, it's just a moment where we get to remember what Christ did for us in his life, death, and, uh, and resurrection and all the rest. So anyways, those are kind of the four main views. Um, you know, I think both Skyler and I hold to a real presence view, Definitely. um, kind of following in the line of particular Baptists and, and Presbyterian mm-hmm. views. I'd say go back, Supper. it goes back to Athanasius and yeah. Augustine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I, uh, I I want I, the, the reason I spent so much time on the Cheryl Esplin quote. And by the way, it's throughout the manual: making the sacrament more meaningful. Making the sacrament more meaningful. Yeah. What, <laughs> what is this? Um, the reason I spent so much time on that is I wanted to distinguish all of the Christian debate from the LDS view, mm-hmm. because even Zwingli's view is not that. Yeah, Zwingli is not saying what Christians subjectively. <laughs> Right, he would emphasize faith, but once again, in the reform context of what faith is, not mm-hmm. 
the 19th century romantic individualistic LDS American view of what faith is, yeah. which is contrary to reason. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's the, I think, let's see, where do I want to land really quick? Really quickly, what can I do to make the sacrament more meaningful? We see bread and wine is necessary because it's what Christ has done, right? Um, so when they say, what can I do to make the sacrament more meaningful? What would we say? What has Christ done that is meaningful? And then we're debating over the degree to which he is there. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and this leads to debates. And a lot of the debate, um, for those who uh, haven't read a lot in this area, uh, not that I'm some great expert, but those who have read a lot in this area will see it, it ultimately comes down to Christology. Yeah. It comes down to how you understand Chalcedon in the sense of articulate the distinction of, of natures and the singularity of person with Jesus. And what Zwingli is trying to do, though, I do not hold his view. I think Calvin is right to be very leery yeah. of his view, actually. Calvin was pretty strongly opposed to Zwingli's view, mm-hmm. though also different from Luther's view, um, is um, how... Christ is resurrected in his body now. He's ascended. He's sitting on the throne or the right hand of the Father. He's, so his body is there. His physical body is there, and his physical body will return, right? So that's where a lot of the debates are. But what he instituted, and this is maybe a way to think of it, is Christ present at the first Lord's Supper? And where is he? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, now, LDS, right? This is uh, Stephen J. Lund, who's trying to wax poetic here. I can't, <laughs> I don't know who's worse at waxing poetic, him or Sam Harris. But he says, all of the sacramental symbols point us to that gift. Right, because there's a lot of gift talk in LDSism. Right? We contemplate the bread that he once broke and the bread the priests before us are in turn now breaking. We think of the meaning of the liquid. Liquid? <laughs> yeah. Wait, the bread and body, the wine, blood. Okay, so we're all agreed there. So LDS are Aquarian, which is a heresy. Um, Second, on the Christology, they don't have a God. So when they affirm Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, one person, or the second. Okay, you can't claim they're different gods and not be polytheistic. You can't claim they're different gods and hold to what we hold to when we say Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man. Here's another one. And I think this is important for all Christians to understand is um, the early church taught that he was really present. And it was articulated differently, but you know, when they say the unanimous view of the church is X, uh, it probably isn't true. <laughs> like there's going to be differences, but it's pretty widespread that he's really present in some way. And that's where the debate is, right? And here's the thing, when you're in Augustine's world, how you articulate the, the visible sign being an invisible reality is going to be different than even later with the reintroduction of Aristotle um, and then in the different Reformation contexts, right? But all of it goes back to um, how you articulate the natures of Christ, how you see him currently, and what this sacrament is based on what Christ and the apostles taught. So I, I think... Um, 
Calvin, though he's often seen as this marginal view, is the view of the church fathers. That's my view. And for those who uh, want more, actually, it's not even Calvin that I think is the best one voice of his own view on this. It's Peter Martyr Vermigli's Dialogue on the Two Natures of Christ, um, in which he's showing Christology and its connection to the Lord's Supper. See, if you understand that Christ can be everywhere present spiritually, though his body's in one place, and then tie that to him being really present in the Lord's Supper, Mm -hmm. there you see how you can affirm real presence and yet not compromise the incarnation or pantheize the incarnation the way I think Luther did with his view of the ubiquity of Christ's body, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is actually pretty similar to some Eastern Orthodox views of the incarnation. So... Um, I Now, the debate between uh, Calvin and Bullinger, for those who are interested, Bullinger thought it would be coincident to the bread and wine, so it's not necessarily the bread and wine. Calvin did think, no, it's bread and wine that are somehow causally connected to Christ feeding his people spiritually. Once again, spiritually being more than real, not less than real. R- regardless of how you understand that platonically, Aristotelian, whatever, the biblical view is on one hand he says, I am there. Yep, and he's covenantly committed to be there and feed his people, who are his people. How should it be guarded? Right? Why guard it if there's no real? Th- the, the, I think one of my main issues with the just the mere memorial view, which is still better than the LDS view. I'm not saying it's the same, but mm-hmm. the mere memorial view is why is there such a threat? Why could you drink damnation under your soul the way Paul warns if he's not really? There and once again, this is objective. We all affirm there's something signified mm-hmm. in trying to debate the sign, whereas the LDS, as we saw, it's completely contingent upon what you bring to it. Yep, yep, yeah. So, from help? our <laughs> yeah, from our perspective, I mean, simply put, uh, the Lord's Supper uh, is a meal in any case, yeah, where we are celebrating. The forgiveness of sins, the provision of God, the, um, the the gift of salvation that we receive in Christ, and it doesn't matter which you know credo Christian perspective you're going to come at that from. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrament that is required to add to our salvation, and I think that's just important to be crystal clear <laughs> on that point when it comes to the distinction of how we recall the Lord's Supper. Um, and so when we fence the table, as we say, that's what we, we that's the phrase that we use when it comes to who's allowed to partake and who's not allowed to partake. Um, there can be debates even within evangelical circles on how, how you should fence the table. There's three different main views even there that we don't have time to get into right now. But when we fence the table, the people that we invite to come to the table, just spoken at in a broad sense, are those who are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for the justification that they uh, that is required for them to be saved. And, uh, and it's for those who are affirming the Trinitarian God as the one and only true God, who are holding to those fundamentals within the faith, even if they're going to disagree on some more peripheral matters. Are you worshiping the same God as us? Are you trusting in Christ's merit alone uh, for the justification of your of your sinful self before a holy God? And if you are, we welcome sinners to come to the table. And there, there is no real expectation. Now, there could be some 
some fine distinctions here, but broadly speaking, if you are a sinner and you are there seeking Christ along with us, um, you know, we're going to make more qualifications than that even in our church. But yeah. just to speak in the most general sense, the table is for sinners. And yes. it's to remember that we need Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Yeah. And of course, from our perspective, we believe in the in the taking of the bread and the cup. Christ is with us and Christ is reminding us in that time that we're taking of those elements that he has forgiven us. And so we're, we're rejoicing in the gospel um, of salvation as we take of the, the elements. And, um, and so, yeah, when we, it's just, it's ironic, you know, because when, when we have LDS guests with us, we do bar them from the table. We, yeah. we tell them you're not worshiping the right God and you're not trusting in Christ alone. And so your sins are not forgiven. And, and we want them to know that because we want them to turn to Christ who is the only hope for the forgiveness of their sins. We want to be able to take the supper with them. Um, but it's just ironic because, you know, of course, in an LDS person's mind, they could be the saint of all saints and be barred from our table. Yeah. And uh, that's because uh, we, we have a fundamental difference when it comes to our God and our gospel. Yeah. And it's ultimately about God, not about us and our own happiness. Yep. Absolutely. I, I think uh, it, the Westminster Confession on this gets gets it exactly right. Um, and I won't go into this, but just really quickly on the unworthy part. Of course, LDS are going to bring in their kind of individualistic, um, church-defined view of worthiness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what Paul is saying. I think... Um, in it, First Corinthians. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And um, it's about manner. That's at least what I hear. I don't know if there's a little bit of a difference there, but um, at least at my church, the OPC, there's a liturgical thing read, uh during the right before the Lord partaking the Lord's Supper, that emphasizes un, the unworthy manner, not like unworthy in terms of uh, your moral state. Right? It's more aimed at impenitence, um, I think. But uh, this is this is really great. The this is Confession chapter twenty nine. The outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ have such a relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only. They are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So, anyway, I do think... Um, you, well, I do worry that the gap between even an Aquinas and a Calvin on this in terms of affirming reality to his presence, but in different ways, though answering the same question, um, is greater than how a lot of Christians are today in either communion are to those thinkers, to those churchmen. And uh, I do worry about that. I think it's important to emphasize, of course, primarily the signified, and of course, even someone who has the uh, memorial view um, will do that, I would assume. But I think... It um, emphasizes the covenantal nature of the meal if we take him as his word, right? That he, I will feed you, and mm-hmm. um, if you don't eat me or drink me, you have no life in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and though that's not eschatologically realized yet, there is a sense in which the communing members of the church will eventually be those with life, and those who aren't will not. Yep. And, and so the fact that we would all 
I think every believing communion of Christians, regardless of the denomination, would bar LDS, should say something. Yeah. Wrap us up with a poem there. Okay. I'll put this in the show notes. There you go. Because <laughs> we got to go. Yep. I love this poem. Uh, George Herbert, he wrote a set of poems called The Temple. Um, he was an uh, Anglican minister. Um, and I, I love this poem. This is the last one. And talk about what is signified. I, I almost can't think of a better non-scriptural example of that than in this poem. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here, love, said, you shall be he. I lack the worthiness to be here. You shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot even look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore this blame? My dear, then, I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Mm. And then it ends with the uh, postscript. Might have cut you off too quick there. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Amen. John 14 to 17. Next week, we'll see you then.